was for Toy Story 2. So every visual, storyboard, all of the computer graphics. And for whatever reason, I don't even know that they got into it, but for some reason, a technician or someone was formatting the computer to reuse. And they didn't realize it had all this. And there are hundreds of people working on this project. And as they are working on it, they are seeing Woody's hat disappear, Woody's arms disappear. And 90% of the data gets deleted before they figure out what's going on. talk today about Bjorn. First of all, a question for you. Do you know why I hate physical books? I don't know. Because the pages are terrible. <laughs> oh, ter- ter- oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. It took me a second. Ter- terrible. <laughs> terrible. It's uh, like when I tell a joke to my kids and they're like, Okay, can you explain that a little more? As I'm explaining the joke, I'm just like, okay, I shouldn't have even brought this Isn't up. it worse, though, if you, like, laugh, and then you're like, I don't get it. You know, <laughs> yes, like, yes. It's happened to me before. I, oh. I'll admit it. I'll admit it. <laughs> I, the other one that was on the docket for today was, why does the ghost always need more books? Because he goes through them too quickly. Oh, nice. So aren't you glad I went with the first one? <laughs> I am. Okay. I right. am. Let's, Need some let's music or something, I think, to... Yeah. Book dad jokes are not always the most clever. But that being said, you and I are talking about a book again here. We actually talked about this recently here. You are a new member to Audible, and you are just crushing through books. So this is a kind of a book back already for you, but I thought we should talk about it because I just finished it. It's a book, actually, I wanted to read for years and years because I'm a big fan of the company. I'm a big fan of creativity. Some people say I'm a creative guy. I have some creative outlets. You are a musician, which a lot of people may not know. I like to do some art and writing. And I think a lot of people have these creative outlets. And one of the things that I was always intrigued by is companies that really make their mark on the world via creativity are just really interesting. Like, how do you spark that? How do you incubate it? How do you keep that flame going, keep people happy and all of those things. So this is a book I wanted to read a lot. And I thought maybe you could explain what book we read, because I have certainly labored on here enough about (laughs) everything but the book. Yeah, no, you're right on. It's So the book was Creativity Inc. And this was a leader from Pixar who talked about how Pixar basically built almost like a system, I guess you could say, or an environment, maybe that's a better word, an environment of creativity. And you're right, it's difficult to do. It's difficult to create an environment of creativity (laughs) at a company. But I think anybody that knows Pixar, anybody that's seen any of the movies, any parent, child, maybe like me, you've grown up with Pixar as a kid watching Toy Story and now watching the movies with my kids. They're just fantastic. They're just fantastic movies. They're super creative. The humor is creative. They've done an amazing job of having parent and child humor (laughs) in each of the movies. So they have figured out something there that's pretty special. And this was our chance to really peel back the onion and understand really the kind of the growth that happened in that space. It wasn't always like that. They had some key pieces of it, but how much work it took to to really make that happen and things that had to be addressed to to ensure that it continued moving forward. Very interesting book. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, you know, and one of the things is that I knew the name John Lasseter and Ed Catmull. I was not like 
big fans of them or something like this. A lot of people know Steve Jobs. They were there at the very beginning. In fact, Ed Catmull probably was there earlier. He started in some like computer rooms and colleges. This is really going back. I will say, if you are interested in this book, one of the things that I actually really liked, and you can tell me, is that tended to not just be your standard business book. Here are all my philosophies. Here are all my learnings. It was really a story from the last 20 years of where Pixar came from. Before it was ever Pixar, to all the success that we know. Cars is a great movie. Cars came out before I had kids, and I loved it because I'm a car guy, and there's just something a little bit, I don't know, moving about a movie that's about cars, but then all about the human experience and the loss of the small town Americana and all these things. So they just capture so much in their films. And I think no matter who you are familiar with, any number of Pixar movies, Toy Story, Trilogy, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Up, WALL-E, which is an amazing one. As I mentioned, Up, the opening scene to Up, if if you've seen that, right? Oh, my gosh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's... The movie Up is great, but that opening scene about Carl and his wife, Ellie, is one of those that just gets played as its own movie a lot of times, yeah. and it's heartbreaking sometimes. Yeah. Just maybe it's one of the most of moving pieces of cinema I've ever seen. I would agree. It's very interesting that they left that in there, because I'm sure that they had to know that that was going to mm-hmm. be like a pretty moving intro. And what do you even call that in a movie? I'm not sure what it's really... Is it like a vignette? or is it? I'm not yeah. sure what the name is, but... There's got to be a name for something that's at the beginning of a movie like that, like a whole story within itself almost. But yeah, but it's that, kind of a heavy, so heavy topic for yeah. an animated movie. In some ways, we talk about what is inbounds and out of bounds to talk about. I got to imagine that they had some conversation about, is this too much for an animated movie yeah. targeted for kids? So anyway, I bring up that because the point I'm trying to make here is I think everyone knows Pixar movies. You're familiar with yep. the little desk lamp icon, and you've probably seen that at the beginning of their lead-ins and so many things. But what I loved about it is that he's telling the story of Pixar and then giving his learnings along the way. What did you think about the process of the book or the flow of the book itself? Yeah, it built and built. I felt like it was written a little bit like a movie. Like you said, a lot of different stories that were weaving together. But I guess I, reflecting on it, it just helped legitimize it so much more. The thing is, you pick it up, I think almost anyone that is listening to this that knows Pixar like the proof is in their pudding. You know what I mean? I think anyone can say, yeah, they're creative. You know what I mean? Like, I think you could just blanket statement and say that, but he's attempting to kind of persuade you in how they've created that by building upon the stories of his life. And yet like the whole time you're just thinking, I'm thinking at least I accept that you are creative. You don't need to, <laughs> you don't need to sell me on it, but it was neat to hear the struggles that he went through and the moments that he had, like you said, in in school, he had a professor, I think, that had a particular class that really stood out to him and that he utilized later at Pixar. He just adopted very many of the same practices, which has got to be cool as a professor to hear your student say that if he was still alive when the book was out. But it just showed that it didn't just happen overnight. Like there was creativity, but there was things that were combating against creativity and how you really did have to work hard to have some principles and like an environment that kind of was first open to creativity, but then really fostered it, breeded creativity, giving people creative outlets. And so he just shares how he took these learnings throughout his career. And I honestly really appreciated the things that he talked about that were a real struggle, like the times where they almost went out of business and it cost a lot of money and everyone was questioning if this is really going to pay off. And they shut the, down the, some movies and yeah, yeah, you know, took I the mean, loss yeah, totally. And the fact that Steve Jobs, I think, had to f- personally fund 
Pixar or, or the old Pixar or whatever it was. There was some point where Steve Jobs was like 54 million or something in on, on it. And he was bought in, but that was like a pretty substantial part of his wealth and at the time and how it was a little bit of just dreaming and hoping that this is going to actually work out, that the process is going to work out. And of course it did, but I'm sure in those moments, it was really hard to know. Yeah, a number of things, and I might not have the numbers perfectly right. I'm a Steve Jobs fan. I've just really been fascinated by what he's been able to do in his life. But I think at this point when he bought Pixar, I want to say it was like for $12 million, but I think he was only worth $100 million or so. So this is a big purchase. But then, like you said, because they weren't making money, because they weren't getting the sales, they weren't finding business partners, he was writing personal checks to the company to fund the payroll. So as you said, I think... The majority of his net worth was wrapped up in this company at a point where you're can. And again, we think of Pixar as this movie studio now, but that was not what they were necessarily trying to do. They were trying to do like educational stuff. They were trying to work with GM to do some like 3D modeling for cars. They were just trying to figure out ways to apply the computer 3D illustrations that they were able to do. So it wasn't just a movie studio from the get go. And it was like buying time till they had this big movie release. And I think. And I don't know that he said this in the book, but I think on some other stuff I had read, when they finally got their first three movie deal with Disney, it was for like $35 million or something. So, you know, it was $10 million a movie or something, which I'm sure they were thrilled to be able to make payroll yeah. with. But when you think about, they're talking about movies, they might have $80, $100 million into it. And they were originally contracted to do three movies. To me, it sounds like that money was almost like fire sale money. Disney probably had a great deal. Totally. I would say they got a great deal. Yeah. But I guess my question here is, did that actually help the credibility with Ed Catmull and his stories and his lessons and philosophies and learnings, considering that the company was not a success when he started to make these discoveries? Yeah. As opposed to coming into a billion-dollar company or being, say, hired into Disney and saying, hey, I want to do this, and here are the principles I want to follow. The fact that he had to pair these philosophical ideals about creativity and his management with the practical realities of, I can't let this business fail. But did that help you actually have more appreciation for what he did or give more credence to the things that he came up with? Yeah, for, I think for sure. Because I think if he would have been handed a silver spoon, if he would have gotten a graduate degree, and like you said, gotten right into a creative space that had tons of money and he was just, here's a million dollars of play money, essentially. I think it wouldn't have as much credibility because he didn't have to go through the hard things. And honestly, he probably wouldn't have accomplished as much because it would have just been too easy to try things and not have them be a big deal. Whereas this was kind of a little bit of life and death. And he had to really true entrepreneurship in a lot of ways where you have to really fight for it. But sometimes you're going to be the only one that believes in it and, and you have to convince people. You may even have to sell something ahead of when you actually have it fully built. And just there's like all these things that I think entrepreneurs go through. And I do think that really did legitimize his efforts. And it makes you excited for him that it turned out so well. I have no problem that he's a multi-multi-millionaire. Like he, he earned it. He, Wait, he is? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He never mentioned it. He never mentioned, mentioned it. it yeah, yeah. I did see a video on YouTube. If you go, you can see a tour of, John Lasseter. I think 
maybe John Lasseter was like the creative director or president and Ed Catmull was the CEO or something like that. But John Lasseter is giving a tour of his house and he has these secret rooms that go into his train <laughs> room. So he just has like, these massive train sets. And oh, and then he goes into his wine cellar that has his wine, the Lasseter oh. vineyard wine. So unless he has some other side hustle, I'm assuming they <laughs> yeah. must have done fairly well. Pixar. Cribs? Was it Cribs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any one of those rooms would have been it's a worthwhile episode. So I'm guessing they, they did all right there. But yeah, they, they made a lot. You hear, I wanted to back up here and zoom out a little bit because I, I wanted to talk about creativity. We've had a lot of discussion about this lately. What? Why is creativity? And maybe we can talk about what is creativity? Because I don't think it's necessarily just creative in the way we think of defined creativity, but I think Ed Catmull wraps a lot of stuff into the world of creativity. Yeah. But why is that important in a work environment? Yeah. I think the first thing that he said that I totally agree with is a little bit of a debunking of what the definition of creativity is. But I think what he said, I don't, I'm not going to get exactly right, but it was something like you're taking two things that have, that are already out there and putting them together in a new way. That's an oversimplification. But I think I, we often think creating something is out of creating it out of scratch, like just that's never been done before. I guess that maybe is true, but it's just something that has like never existed or it's out of nowhere. But I think he says it in the book that he's talking about how you're thinking about things in a new way. You're bringing together concepts like he brought together his love of art and Walt Disney and his computer engineering background and he had this dream of somehow creating computer movies, basically. And that was his, the very simple version of Pixar. And that was when he was a kid. And this was back in the, gosh, I don't know, what was it, like in the 50s, maybe 60s, probably, maybe further back. Yeah. I don't know. So I don't think he gave a year. But so that that was, I think, one thing that was helpful. He's just, probably listening you know, to this right now. And he's going, I'm 38. Oh, I'll be <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think outside the box thinking, I think, can be really good for business. Number one, I think it can save money. If we're just talking in the existing business, like it can be more efficient. It can save the company money and time and effort and energy and all those things. I think the other thing, especially in our world of financial wellness is there are a lot of people talking about finances all over the place. Tons of people, tons of tips, many of the same tips said the same way by different people. And so trying to find ways to be different, having a differentiator. Every company to some level has to have a differentiator or you're not going to last very long. So I think in our case, that's the takeaway I had was we're trying to use things that are out there, like all the tools are in the tool belt, but now we're going to try to put them together or use them in different ways than another person has used them. And that was a helpful way of deconstructing kind of this nebulous term creativity and just putting it into kind of brass tacks or practical words <laughs> or definition that was just, okay. It's not as out there as you think. I think it, it can be scary. It can be unknown. It can feel like a waste of time and energy and it can be viewed like that. But when you're just thinking about innovation, taking things that are already there that everybody knows about and putting them together in different ways to create something new that somebody hasn't experienced before. And then there ends up hopefully being demand for that then that's cool. That's something that's worth pursuing and can actually be very efficient if you're doing it that way. Devil's advocate here. Creativity is important in a company like Pixar that's writing stories and making a movie. But I just work in an office environment. I just have production staff. Why would I need to make creativity? Have you ever seen a work environment where creativity is stifled, either overtly or unintentionally? And what happens then? 
Yeah, I think that many of us, like whether we're like really strongly creative or just a little bit creative, I do think all of us have some kind of creative bone in our body. You know what I mean? Every single worker. Because like you said, even if like in your day job, you're doing, I don't know, data processing. But I, I know a lot of people that do work like that where it's more straightforward, but then they totally like they're a musician or they paint. So it's like there's a need there's a need there that's deep inside of us to be creative. And so if that isn't fostered or there's no kind of outlets for that, that can be harmful to the environment because then people feel like they're only getting to bring half of themselves to work. If they're a very creative person, that can be really hard. They have to try to fit into a new role or into an area, or maybe have to go to another organization to get creative energy out because they they have it. But some companies have actually allowed, like I worked for a company in the past where even though I worked in human resources, I had the chance to pitch, to come up with an idea that was a company-wide idea, pitch that idea. It got selected as one of the top ideas and then actually got money and time to go out and try that idea. And what did the company have to give up? They gave up one day of some of their people and I guess me. So they gave up a couple headcount for one day but I got such a rich and rewarding experience and honestly give major credit to the company for doing that. And so it just, it made me more of a engaged worker, more excited to be there. And it wasn't even directly tied to my job, but those are learnings that I can easily apply to my work. Fail fast, test and learn, get out there and try it. There's so many things that I've taken from that experience that it was just so worth it for them to do that. Because like, why wouldn't you want new ideas to, to keep you ahead of the game as a company, no matter what you're doing. Yeah, I totally agree. I, one of the things that I was thinking throughout this book is like the relationship between creativity and autonomy. Like you said, it's not necessarily I'm in a role where you have to write stories or movies or something like this, just your little flourishes on things. But if you work in an environment, and I think it can be very binary, where we either encourage creativity to some extent, or we stifle it, there's usually not a lot of gray area and it comes down to sometimes the managers or maybe the culture if you assemble something in one way and you maybe figure out a little different way to have fun with it or dance while you're doing it and people are like hey listen let's make sure our quality stays high i don't want you to do that or maybe you put little flourishes on the direct mailers that go out or on your emails or add animations to your social media posts or whatever it might be right some of those types of things but if a company says, hey, don't do that, or they discourage it, and it's kind of just follow the framework, follow the recipe, I feel like that gets really boring for people. Even if you aren't feeling like you're stifled, it just becomes very routine. You want, and not necessarily on a day-to-day -day basis to come up with something grand, but I feel like people want the ability to come up with something. Like you said, it's your company to come up with a new idea. Where's the suggestion box on most companies? Do most managers have the appetite to hear a different idea? There are a lot of times, even in this book, he talks about they had a philosophy of you could go in your role to anyone else in the company, regardless of the role directly, right? Yep. And yep. I think in a lot of companies, you are almost required, whether by proclamation or well politeness to go to your boss to give that idea to hand it off and maybe they fly it up the chain but i thought that was interesting that they didn't want impediments to having discussions and flow and creativity the other thing i wanted to say about ed catmull is he's like a technician in many ways and one of the things that really struck me was one of the stories at the very beginning of the book he talks about 
because I think we take computer graphics for granted in many ways. He talks about how one of his first projects was to digitize a hand. It has no flat surfaces. And how do you do this with a computer that can only render lines? And he did it with hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many of her little triangles, you know, little polygons to render the hand, the curvature. And you think about like, all the computing power that goes into something That's small amazing. like that. And then you have not only that, but arms and the legs and now the, the hair and all these other things and just how far computing power has come. But how much is done now that is routine because of people like Ed just yeah. building the groundwork for a lot of that. I just think it's pretty amazing. Totally. No, that you're right. They'll just at a macro scale, like the advancement, not just like technology that is within its own industry, but like that, that would lead to, or has led to innovations that help multiple industries or all industries. Cause it, toward the end of the book, you, they bring up the iPhone and you just think about how much of an influence that has had on billions of people in the entire world. So you can't say that Pixar led to that, but you could say that it started with all these other littler things that didn't take off like that one, but it led to that monumental invention of Steve Jobs and his team. And I don't know, I'm sure there's a bunch of yeah. other people involved, but. And some credit goes to me for buying basically every version of the iPhone that's ever come out. Hey, so Apple yep. wouldn't be here without me. I exactly. take some credit for that. I want to talk, this book is just story from beginning to end, story after story. In fact, I even read the afterword, which was probably added on, I think sometime after Steve Jobs died. It's a little bit of a soliloquy to him, but there are just so many stories, so many lessons from those stories. You could probably listen to that story and come up with different lessons than Ed did, but do you have any story? Let's start with the one. Any story that he shared throughout in the book that you thought was particularly interesting, either the story was or the lesson from it was? Yeah, I think one that stood out to me was when they decided that they were going to be sold to Disney. And I guess I gravitate toward the failure moments because it's those to me are ones where I love when people admit failures and they just are honest about it. And then they just say, I tried this. It didn't work. I tried this. It didn't work. I tried this. It didn't work. And I tried this and then it did work. Like they just, they figured out. So he got up in front of his whole team and I you can just imagine if you're this kind of startup, super creative, all these creative people, you got this great culture going, you've had some serious movie success, but it's a well-oiled machine. It's going well. And then all of a sudden you bring in the giant Disney and I'm sure everyone was like, what in the world is going on here? We are going to be stifled. Just what we talked about. You're going to be stifled. You're not going to, we're not going to be able to keep doing what we're doing. And I think he got up and said, don't worry, guys, nothing's going to change. We're still going to be able to operate the same way that we always have. He quickly says in the book that did not work and that wasn't going to happen. It wasn't honest. And so then he gets up in front of the group again and tries to change the message a little bit, but it still didn't work. And he said, I had to get up in front of the group, I think three or four more times and basically admit, because we're all adults, and you know, we can read between the lines. We're pretty smart people. Because I think and, he says, of course we're going to change. That's what Pixar does. But we're going to change in our Pixar way. But yeah. Just, you know, more Disney people. <laughs> exactly. So then I realized that I just needed to get up and say, no, it's going to change. It's going to be different. So he was just honest with how it was going to be. And he's like, we'll work through that. We'll try to figure out what does Disney do well that we like? What do we do well that we like? And so I think his takeaway was, Sometimes it's better just to say that the first time and not waste so much time trying to uh, his team, but just to be honest with them and say, it's not going to be easy. But this, we do think this is the right move. And I guess his people had to just trust him in that instance. And I think they, 
they went through a few growing pains, but eventually it really paid off because they had way more resources. He said something like the team grew from 25 to 1500, I think it was or something. Yeah. So, huge distribution now. Yeah. You get all yeah. of the benefits of the marketing. He even talked about having some people from Disney marketing, giving him some advice that he ignored. And I think it was the movie, The Princess and the Frog suffered because sometimes when you get acquired, you think you know everything and they did have some marketing challenges. So there's a lot of balance. And I think one of the things that you go back to is you want to hear everyone. You don't know where a good idea is coming from. Sometimes it's hard for people to get out of their own way. Let's stay on the topic of failures for a second. Obviously, Pixar has had many successes, but I want to talk about the failures here and talking about one of the employees going rogue and how that person was critical in a moment where they had a server. I believe it was for Toy Story 2. So every visual, storyboard, all of the computer graphics. And for whatever reason, I don't even know that they got into it, but for some reason, a technician or someone was formatting the computer to reuse. And they didn't realize it had all this. And there are hundreds of people working on this project. And as they are working on it, they are seeing Woody's hat disappear, Woody's arms disappear. And 90% oh, of the data gets <laughs> deleted before they figure out what's going on. I'll hand it off there. Can you fill in the yeah. rest of the story? This is why it's fun to read books like this, because like when you get into the inside scoop, maybe this was a story that was shared somewhere else, but I didn't know the story. I so never knew it. It was amazing. So they had this keyboard command and it, he told us what it was. It was some really long, complex, as you would ex you would hope it would be, like a, like a really long password, basically, to delete off their server, all the stuff, all the data. So... Like you said, this employee accidentally did this and all of a sudden stuff starts disappearing and they can't believe it right away because you just wouldn't, you'd be like, oh my gosh. And then all of a sudden they realize what's happening and like the whole movie is just getting destroyed basically. And they've got a due date. This thing is going to be in theaters in a few months and they can't get to it quick enough. They're having people like pull the power cords. They're just rushing to basically save this stuff. And it, they don't, like you said, like 90% of it, almost all of it, whatever it was is gone. And so they were just shocked and they get together as a leadership group and probably some other employees. And they're just trying to figure out what can we do here? Because now it's the, that due date is gone. There's no chance. Like they're gonna have to recreate all this. He said, and all of a sudden one of our employees remembered that she had actually spent some time working from home. I think she had some medical thing or family thing or something where she had to work from home for a little while. This is before working from home was as normal. But she remembered that she had actually taken a computer, I think, from the studio and had a backup of almost everything. And she wasn't supposed to do it. I guess this was like a rogue thing. She wasn't supposed to have it. She wasn't supposed to do this. And he said, I think, that they could have got, they could have fired her. I mean, because this was definitely something that was against company policy. But instead, they took the amazing miracle <laughs> And they actually, I think one of the leaders drove with her to her house, grabbed the laptop, wrapped it in a blanket, and kind of probably drove under the speed limit back to the studio to go and save all the files. And the rest is history because they did the movie and it was a huge success. But yeah, it was interesting because I think he even said, looking back on it, not that he, I don't think, would necessarily encourage employees to go rogue, but he said, we didn't need to like make a lesson out of her. We just needed to appreciate the fact that we had this wonderful miracle basically that happened to have a backup file and we didn't need to make an example out of her. But I think he was just, I guess he was just trying to make the point that not all rogue things are bad. 
I guess is what he was also trying to say. Yeah. And I think the key is that they took the guy who deleted the computer and made him an example. So he was <laughs> brutally beaten outside in front of the offices. <laughs> no, no. no, I think what's interesting <laughs> is that nobody was fired. They didn't fire anyone, yeah. even the person who deleted it. And I think there were, to me, a couple of striking things. And tell me if you agree, disagree, or have some other thoughts. But one of those things, when we're talking about the rogue employee, is I think an implicit trust you have with your employees. That they yep. are doing things yep. for the benefit of the company, even if it's not against policy, even if they're thinking creatively. And maybe there isn't a policy that says you don't take a movie from the studio home with you. I, I don't know. Maybe it is an employee handbook. But when people are genuinely trying to do something good for the company, and it might be a risk. In this case, the risk paid off to save their behinds. I think they said in the end, they only lost maybe a week or a few days worth of work because it wasn't the most recent copy of the files, but it was close enough. They did not have to go back to nine months of development. Yeah. So I think one, when there is an implicit trust with the people you work with, your employees, I think that goes a long way because now, you know, I'm not taking it home to sell or because I want my own souvenir or anything like this. We're all pulling in the same direction. The other thing I think that was an important lesson from this is that it can be very easy to point fingers and have someone be the sacrificial lamb. But what you do is you can create a culture of non-failure, people not taking risks because they don't want to mess up. And what you end up getting is a very stoic, tried and true, follow the process, follow the rules, don't take any chances type of culture too. And I think that kind of blends in with his creativity mindset here is that it was an honest mistake that you don't want someone now not to use a computer or to yep. not to develop something because, geez, if I screw it up, I know I'm out of here. So I thought that was a pretty noble decision right. all around to embrace that. No, I totally agree. Sometimes when the obvious result doesn't happen, mm -hmm. if you were an employee, you'd probably be like, oh my gosh, I wonder who's getting fired, who's getting fired today because that happened and the wild goose chase and all the pain and frustration and anger and all those things could really be lashed out upon in a company setting it. And honestly, you'd probably say like it was justified. They shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have had the computer with the files on it. That employee shouldn't have done the computer command. Like they should have known that we're going to solve that problem right now. When that's obvious, that is the next step. And it doesn't happen. Sometimes <laughs> that can be, like you said, like a huge lesson. And I think that was probably like one of the better leadership traits or examples that he gave within the book was when it is the expected result, it doesn't happen. It's kind of like a, in parenting, right? Like I've heard the saying, like more is caught than taught. And yet, like I still try to teach my kids and sometimes forget the fact that they just pick up on a lot of things too. And that's probably the better teacher. This would be like one of those same type of examples where they've caught this versus being taught. You don't, you don't take risks like this because you'll get fired. But what they learned, what they caught was we're a team. This is a team effort. We trust you guys. We know that nobody was trying to do this on purpose. And yes, that was a potentially catastrophic event that just happened, but we're going to actually flip it on all of you. You all think somebody's going to get fired and we're actually going to not fire anyone. And we're not even going to try to figure out who did it. I don't think he even said who did it. I don't think they even knew who did it. I think they, they didn't go on the witch hunt there and try to find the person. They just said, hey, we got them back. Let's not do that again, <laughs> but we're not going to go and make an example of somebody. So that is, it, it's interesting to think about that in our own 
work and in our own lives. Like, how can we do that more? Look for ways to give people credit or look for opportunities to not try to make an example or blame on somebody else. But if that is justified, can we actually not do that? And it'll actually teach a better lesson with more healthy trust building behaviors that could result in a better end product down the road. Play the long game. Yeah, it's funny as you're Describing that, one of the things that I was thinking about is I've worked in program development for a long time, building programs, piloting things. And what ends up happening sometimes for a lot of companies is what you're saying. And it's not necessarily like punitive, but I've worked with some brilliant people, some people I'm still in touch with that I just think are some of the smartest people I've met. I've had the chance to work with you on a couple of programs. So people that build something from the ground up, sometimes that's not an established industry or business already are some of the most creative, resourceful, hardest working people ever. But in the world of pilots, pilot programs get shut down a lot. And oftentimes when they get shut down, you lay off the people that were in those programs. And it's funny because as I look back on it, there are companies that maybe have shown the door, in my opinion, to some of the, maybe the best people that they had at their company where that was just the practice and there's no real thought of what should I do to keep these people? It's almost like the pilot didn't work. We have to point the finger at someone. It must've been the people. And yet maybe the people gave you the best chance at making that a success. Maybe you've got more learnings from it at a corporate level. Maybe you've got people now that are equipped, educated and informed about how to do the next program successfully. And I think this is something that a lot of companies have to think about. And one of the things that I thought would be really applicable to most people and most companies, people in general, is feedback. Getting negative feedback can be very difficult. You and I write a lot of content. I look at your presentations. I'm about to send you one of mine. I want you to take some time to look at that and give some feedback. But for a lot of people, it's not easy to take feedback. It's not easy to take criticism, revisions. There are ways that we try to couch that a little bit or make it a little bit more palatable to the people. But in the Pixar world, they had some very honest very direct feedback sessions. Can you talk about what that is and, you know, what they do is because I think if you were to hear about these, you would think, man, people would come out of these things just deflated, demolished. Kind of explain that and share with me your take on those. So the first thing I would say is that I think the main point was that, like, like you just said, if you're going to create Not everything that you create is going to be good the first time, the first round. And so you have to have feedback in the heart of making it the best thing that it's going to be. And so if you're around all different creative people, like that's like a must, I feel like, in creativity. You cannot land on the first iteration, the first, maybe that was the best idea, but usually it's going to take a few rounds and you're going to have to have some serious trust there. So they had that. They had the foundation of trust. That's probably the hardest thing to have and keep and one of the most important things in any team or group setting anywhere. The other thing that they did was they established a process or like a way to do the feedback so that it didn't feel like a one-off. I'm not a big fan of manuals, but it was almost like they put it in the manual. But I even think of like other organizations I'm a part of and how helpful it actually can be to have a process and a manual written down. Because when it gets controversial or you have two different ways of looking at it or a kind of out there question is asked, it is helpful to be able to go back and say, remember, we all agreed that this was how we're gonna do this and it is what it is, we all voted on it or whatever. So they they did that method where they created this thing called the brain trust where they had 
different people from across the organization, I think, and maybe some outsiders too. They had a, they had a, a diverse group. That was maybe one important component of this was a diverse group of thinkers, just to think about it from all different angles. And the expectation was that you go into those sessions with what you think is your idea, but then the idea was separating the idea from the person. That was a very important part of this. Mm -hmm. The idea now has been tossed onto the table. You sit down in the circle with everybody else and the idea is on the table. It's not your idea, it's the idea that everybody has. And then they had this process basically of just poking holes at it essentially, trying to make it a better idea. And people like movie ideas, like even, I think they even said that the movie Up, the only two things that, that stuck with the movie from the first idea was like the bird and the balloons or I, it was or some it was some very basic fringy parts of the movie like not yeah, even it was like two story. princes that live in the sky or something or it was really yeah, different like, so almost all were like bolt was american dog a dog being chased in the desert by a zombie totally. girl scout or something yeah so I think it can be difficult to have a committee approach to everything because it's like, what happens in like, how do you get to a conclusion? If you have 10 strong voices, everybody expresses their opinion. How do you land on an idea? So I think they had a, maybe an official final person that was still needing to be there, but they established this practice essentially of, again, the brain trust, which I really like that concept of well, this process of having this group of people, you put the idea out there. They give their feedback. You have a lot of back and forth. I think he even said in the book that if you were sitting in on this, you would think that this person was just getting just torn to shreds. You know, like he was just like, you'd be like, whoa, like they, this person's going to get fired. But he said that was just normal. Having that candor, that honesty of feedback was everybody with the underlying trust and the ultimate goal of creating the best possible product that they could which I love that. I think who doesn't get excited about thinking about that? And I think there would probably be different thoughts on how to get to that end goal. But the hope would be that out of that collaboration and out of that honesty and that maybe harshness at times, you could really get something that was just like unimaginable because you have like now 10 people with the same goal that have trust, that have different expertise coming together and getting something way better out of it. I, it was a cool concept. It makes me almost want to try that in some way where we're at or hear other examples of how that's worked. Because I think that's probably, I guess, the idea of having a board of directors and that same sort of concept. But th these were actually like the creators themselves, I think, or closer to the creators themselves, getting in on these conversations and hashing it out to get something good out of it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think one of the things that I really liked, and he was retelling some of these stories of people. I think the uh, movie was about the uh, Scottish princess. I can't remember what it was, but the director just taking feverish notes while people were throwing out suggestions like that stick is too small. This is too big. The lighting isn't right. That wouldn't work, whatever. And it reminded me of the idea that you just have to trust that process and try it. There's a big difference when someone throws out a suggestion and you are naturally wanting to respond with your reasoning for why you did something. And it couldn't be as much as I didn't even pay attention to it to, oh, there was some intention behind it. But what I liked about what they were doing is that people were just taking notes and they were doing them on the screen and they had some digital tools where they could do them right where they needed to make the notes or annotations and stuff like this. You could see all these notes and feedback coming. That if you almost just say, hey, don't try to defend it. Don't try to make the excuse. 
just trust that we want the best picture possible because I think that's what is missing sometimes that people sometimes are jockeying for themselves or politicking or trying to make themselves look good or trying to yep. get value or whatever. Yep. If you just accept it openly. And to me, I just had this vision in my mind of this person being very quiet, just taking notes on all the things that they need to take and then would go back to the work and kind of, you know, balance them out because sometimes some of these things are contradictory You mm -hmm. have a bigger stick and have it be less prominent in the picture, whatever it might be. I'm just making stuff up, but yeah. uh, then you need someone on the back end to filter them all, right? So you ultimately have to give someone the trust that they can make the executive decisions with all of this feedback, because some stuff is probably gonna have to get prioritized over other stuff for timelines and resources and all these other things too. So I think the trust piece is a big thing like this, but yep. I also think it's also just about experiencing and saying, hey, I want you to go into this meeting. I know this is your baby, but you ask questions, thank people, just be open to it. And I think people would find out that it's not that bad. Yeah, you might take some things personally, but like I said, if we're all looking for the same outcome here, then you gotta leave it. I wanted to ask you also about another thing here, and we'll have to go back to the very beginning of the movie. There's this idea that some people would weigh in on things. And there's a story about a long table, the head of table, the director, the producer would sit at it. They would put chairs around the outside of the room. And what was that? Why was that a problem? How did they solve it? Yeah, that's you know, right. What's the whole purpose of this? Yeah, he was saying that early on in his time working on some of these things, he noticed that, I think it was at, was it at Pixar? I think it was. They had a square re rectangular table and the higher level leaders would sit in the middle and then would go in order. I think of a chessboard a little bit. It's like the chess, the king and the queen are in the middle and then the less important piece or whatever, the less titled at least, I wouldn't say less important, but just the lower titled people moved out to the edges. And he was just saying how he noticed that basically as soon as one of the leadership spoke up, and gave their thought, it made it pretty hard for anybody else to give their take. And even the visual component of being in the middle of the table made others feel as though they were less a part of the conversation. They were on the edge of the table, they were on the corner, they didn't have an equal stake on that. And kudos to Ed for realizing this. And he was like, I came in the next day and I said, get rid of that table. Okay, we need to make it more of a, I think it was more of a square or round. I think they did a square, but it was, the concept was, Everyone has an equal seat and let's actually visually communicate that. Everyone has an equal seat at the table, throw your titles out the door when you walk in this room. Like it doesn't matter what your title is. Like you were all equal and part of the conversation here. And he found that really assisted in the collaboration and created just a much better and more robust conversation ideas. I mean, everything flowed out of that, but uh, it was cool because I am still maybe somewhat skeptical. Like, really? Does the space really matter? Come on. can't. Isn't it more about the people and the understanding of how this all works and the importance of having to see the table? But the fact that he went through and basically eliminated any <laughs> rectangular structure, essentially, it sounded like that would assist having a collaborative, equal conversation and... I love that concept. I just love that idea of throwing your titles out the door. Like a good idea can come from anywhere. I truly believe that. Why should, just because leaders have had some success doesn't mean that in this case, they will have the best idea or because the tried and true ways that have always happened are gonna always now be next or new ways that need to happen going forward. And imagine the empowerment and the trust and just the excitement that is felt by like a frontline employee at a company or by somebody that's not even in the creative department. Imagine if they were the ones to throw forth an idea 
that was actually partially used or fully used and it actually ended up working out. Wouldn't that be something that everybody would be excited about because that was the best idea of all the ideas? And so I just love that concept. I think they even used that concept in some other ways too. Do you remember the movie Big, Tom Hanks? Yeah, yeah. He's a kid that gets big and yes. then goes and works at a toy yes. company. And it's just, I don't get it. Why is this fun? And it's, it just reminds me of that. It's, they don't know he's a 12 year old, but he's turning the company around because you got all these adults that think this is the formula for making a fun toy and not just what is fun. Yeah. So I totally agree. And I like it. I did sympathize with that because there have been a number of times I've been in meetings where there isn't enough room and you're sitting at it on a chair against the wall. And it's not like anyone says it, but it's, if you want to speak up and you want to say, you know, Hey, here's a thought. And then the people sitting at the table kind of pivot around right, and look like, at you. Uh, it's, it's almost yeah. like, uh-oh. <laughs> it's like you're almost put on the spot in some ways. You know what I yep. there, It doesn't have that free-form type of conversation that I think you really need to stay creative, to feel like you're collaborating, to just speak your mind. And this was, I think, the big problem is he was just saying the people that were on the furthest end of the table would speak less. The people sitting around the edges would speak the least, if at all. And yeah. that would change. And in fact, I think when they changed the table to the more round table, they were still putting place cards for That's the people right. to sit at. That's right. And he's like, got to stop that too. Because yep, that those. disproportionately put some people in positions of power. And of course, as I'm reading this, all I'm thinking is you put this round table in there and then you require, and I think they should, for even more anonymity, everyone comes in a full suit of armor and then they lay their, <laughs> yes, their swords like down that. on the table. Definitely. You know, yes, it's that would a, be good. So that's a, that's the point of the round table. You know, that would not be distracting at all. A yeah. couple other questions for you. I think this one was interesting to me is he has a tip of hiring people smarter than you. And I think it was in New York at a university or something like that. And he was staffing up and this was his first experience with it. And he hired a a gentleman. And the thing that he was saying is, I just hired this guy. He's making less money than me. He's way smarter than me, way more informed. He should be my boss. I shouldn't be his boss. And this was his first experience with hiring people who are smarter than him, but then he really embraced it. Is you get into different positions, right? And is this easier said than done? What did you think about this? Yes, it is easier said than done. Yeah. It's a really good point that I, that did stand out to me too. And part of me wants to say, I think it can be done both ways. Like we, we've seen examples of both styles being done, right? We can probably all think of some set of smartest guys in the room type companies that are out there right now that are big names. And the leader of the company is the big name and not everybody loves that leader. They are super successful. There is that way of doing it. I think both ways can be done because I think they've both been shown to be done. I do think that as much as we all think that there needs to be that head person, that's the smartest person that knows everything that's going on. I do think though, that the other way can be done and can be done very well. And it can create an environment of creativity. It can create an environment of ownership. It can create an environment of trust. It can be a really solid team. If the top leader actually like you said, isn't the smartest person in the room because they need to have the other people or it will not work. And yet then they can still play that role of having decision-making power that you have to have. Otherwise you're running a company by committee and that really doesn't work either. I've seen examples of this in my own life. I think it is the a- Pontiac Aztec looked like it was a car designed by committee. Exactly. That's what you get out of that. You have to have the right kind of person. You have to have a person that knows who their identity is or like at the core, they know who they are because otherwise 
there's going to be a threat felt. It's going to be threatening. It's going to be like these people, like they want my job or they could have my job. And probably in some companies, they probably could have the CEO job because they just have all these people who are <laughs> CEO level people, but they're working together as a team. And it takes a special kind of person, I think, or special kind of leader to be able to deal with that and to maybe have some of the skill sets that some of those really smart people don't actually have because they're super smart maybe in a lot of areas, but maybe they're like really smart in that specific function that they are head of. And this person leading could maybe even be a little bit more of a generalist. So they're not, they're not going to be able to be the CFO because they don't know finances, but they know enough about it to know that they also need to work with this other area and they can be the champion and that could be their skill set. So there's not a very con concise answer here because I think it actually can be done both ways. Personally, <laughs> I would much rather be a part of the latter than the former, because the latter is, if that leader leaves, what happens? If they're the smartest person and they get to do everything, what happens if they leave? Yeah. That, that doesn't work out very well for the company or it can just be left in shambles. And it can create really a hierarchical and cutthroat type environment if the CEO of the organization feels like everyone's a threat. So there's like a, almost like a conspiracy theory mindset that would happen there versus somebody that entrusts and empowers and honestly doesn't have to know everything that's going on in the company because he or she has great people that are rocking it. And I love that concept of if things go really well, there is enough credit to go around. Like everyone can share the credit. There doesn't need to be one person that gets it because if the company does well, if the product does well, organization does well, I mean, there will be enough to go around. And I think, I think they did that here. Does a billion dollars. There exactly. certainly isn't enough to go around. Exactly. We'll talk about what happens at that point <laughs> in a minute here. But I totally agree with you. I feel like this is one of those things that's like an interview layup question. Everyone says the same thing. Yes, I want to hire people that are better to work for me. Yes, I want to work long hours. Yes, I'm a perfectionist. Yes, I'm a company person, whatever it might be. And the reality is, to me, it's it's almost like I see something like this and I'm like, how can that be controversial? But I totally understand. I think it just depends on where your head is at. To me, what I don't like is always being the person who brings the idea because I actually love it when people bring me something that I haven't seen because if you are always bringing the ideas, you almost feel like you're the only one doing the heavy lifting. But if people are bringing you ideas, especially people who work for you, I love it when someone brings something, a presentation, an idea, a concept, and I'm like, mind blown. That's great. What a great way of rethinking it. What a great way totally. to look inside out of the data. I think you and me, a number of the people that we love working with are all people like that. It doesn't matter the source of the idea. It's like we see the idea for what it is. And then yes, we can go after it. I want to certainly be a contributor too. I want to bring my own ideas to the fore and help people and be contributors as well. I think we all do. But I think the people that want to be the only contributor are certainly putting themselves in a situation where they're going to be capped. And if you are only hiring people under you that are lesser skill, I think you're going to find yourself micromanaging them, teaching them. If you're right. just going to do it yourself, if you're going to micromanage, if you're going to be a doer and not a leader. And especially, you brought up a great word in our conversation a couple minutes ago, trust, right? If I'm going to trust you to do something, I should have trust that you have the competence to do it, right? That gives me the confidence that I can let you go on your own, that I'm going to see something. There have been many times when I'm like, here's what I'd love to see. 
and you give them space, autonomy, the creativity, and they come back with something better than you expected. A graphic that's better than you expected, a deliverable, a video, whatever it is. And there have been many times when, honestly, people have given me back something and they've said it apologetically. Hey, I've taken a little liberty with this. I don't know if this is going to work for you. And I'm like, mind blown. Yeah. This is fantastic. This is fantastic. To me, it's an overhead because I like working less. If everyone else is a, is an amazing doer, that's good for all of us. Um, right. One I was one point I was just going to make that I think answers a question you asked earlier about like, why is creativity good in the workplace? I think you just answered it right there. That's why, because if it's, if there's a culture of creativity, like there was in Pixar and there's the reality, I believe that is widely been proven that to get to the most creative idea or a creative idea or an outside the box creative idea takes a lot of ideas. It's going to take idea after idea. You cannot really cap, have a defined number of ideas before you get to the idea. And if you don't have everyone working toward that goal of having ideas and having a place to put the ideas, like you said, a suggestion box or program like I got to do where you get to pitch your idea, like a Shark Tank kind of thing, or some avenue to actually give the idea for it to go somewhere meaningful, then people just go, all right, I guess you don't really care about any of my ideas. You have to all accept that not every idea is going to be a good idea. If you have 20 ideas, you might have one that's a good idea. But if you just say, we don't want any ideas because that's a waste of our time to get the 19 bad ideas to try to get the one, you'll never get the one because you'll never have a process. There will never be that culture. So that's what I loved about Pixar. And I would love anywhere that I work to have that avenue to come up with just ideas. Like the ideas can be whatever and they go into a spot and then they're considered at least. Like I think that they tried to do here in this book. So just cool to see how they built that machine of creativity. And that that is no small feat. And that is really tough to do because that meant that they had to accept the fact that they couldn't rest on their laurels. Like they had to always be creating the new thing. And it could feel like a really out there idea that I don't know how this is going to work. But then, of course, then they come up with the movie Inside Out, where you're like in the brain of a person and there's these emotions. And that that was super creative. But I'm going to guess right off the bat, that was really, are we sure this is going to work? That's not a princess. Like, it's not an animal. Yeah, just that, that idea of having a, the feeling of a culture of creativity where anyone really can have an idea and you're not going to get your wrist slapped. It's not going to be viewed as a waste of time. Like, that, that helps just exponentially compound the number of ideas I think that can come out in order to get the one, just to get the one idea that could be life-changing, could be company-changing, could be future-changing. So I just, I think they did about as good of a job and I'm sure it wasn't perfect. And I was curious actually, are there people who worked there that are reading it and going, oh yeah, they're saying all this stuff, but that's not how it really was. I'm sure there's some of that, but it's, they did a pretty darn good job and they've got results to show. I still watch videos of Pixar. They show up my feet every now and then. It just looks like it's an interesting place. When you watch some of these tours, there are people who are shading specialists or finger specialists. And I would really encourage you, if you're interested in Pixar at all, watch some of the videos. I sent you some pictures of people making yeah. huts and homes around their cubicles. It's meant to inspire creativity. And I think they not only embraced it, but they made it flourish. And when they went to Disney, there's even a story about him talking about like, why are the Disney cubicles so sterile? So I think that is a place where you are encouraged to show your creativity, but not forced. You are encouraged to wear pieces of flair, 
but you are not required <laughs> to have pieces of flair. That's a very important distinction it is. because otherwise you just want to make the minimum pieces of flair higher. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, because this is, I thought was interesting is Ed Catmull, John Lasseter, a lot of these guys who thought about animation, their dream was to go work at the Walt Disney Company, right? To be an animator at Walt Disney. They go with this heady chutzpah. Let's get into the digital age. Let's push this forward. Get out of just the pen on paper type of illustrations. And they go and they are just resoundingly rejected. Most of these guys never have a chance. If they do, they're there for a very short period of time before they're shown the door. Disney doesn't want anything to do with them. They go out on their own, build this business. Disney ends up paying billions and billions of dollars for this company <laughs> in the end. And right now, I don't think if I, I'm not sure when the book was published, but I think the hand-drawn animation division of Disney is gone, effectively, right? Is that right? Probably. I mean, I don't um, know, but yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. the Prince of the Frog maybe the last one or something like this, but it is basically Pixar is the animation art of Disney, which I would argue is Disney. I would argue that all the other stuff that you think about, the theme parks, the movie rights, the TV shows, the merchandising, is totally. all an offshoot of animation. Pixar now <laughs> is Disney. And what is amazing to me is this poetic justice of wanting to be at Disney not being allowed to be at Disney, and then coming back and effectively running Disney is certainly Disney animation. I wanted to ask you about this because I think you and I have talked a lot about building programs and companies inside of companies, doing things on your own, working with charities. How unique is that? How does a company sometimes have everything at their disposal to be successful and just turn their back on it? Is this something that people should do is embrace entrepreneurship if they really want to be creative, be innovative in a space? I'm just kind of curious what you took away yeah. from that. No, it's a good point. It, it reminds me, it's the overused blockbuster Netflix example, but it's just that it's like, you should have bought Netflix blockbuster, <laughs> like you should have done it and you didn't do it. And then you lost big time. I think that's like you said, the same example. It's like Yahoo it, passing on Facebook. Yahoo wanted to pay 800 million, I think. Facebook wanted a billion. There was just no way they were gonna yeah. bridge that. I think it can be hard for companies with a strong mission or culture because the whole concept of that mission or culture is to get everyone on the bus, to use the Jim Collins idea, like get everyone on the bus, get them rowing in the same direction. That takes a lot of work to get like a big system built that's all moving in the same direction. And I think the fear is that entrepreneurship will have everybody going in opposite different directions. Like it'll just be like, have we have 500 people that work here, a thousand people that work here, they're all gonna go in different directions. How in the world is this all gonna be able to work? So there's some definite legitimacy of it, kind of the two different schools of thought there. But I don't think those are the only two options. Mm -hmm. I think that there are companies like Pixar, they have 1500 people that work there and they seem to have figured out how to keep creativity alive and well, and have one movie they're working on, like they have a shared vision. I think there are ways to encourage the behaviors of an entrepreneur um, within the confines of a big company. I think it's harder, but I think it can be done. I think there are plenty of organizations, Apple, any, probably any tech company that's out there right now that we all know has found some way to do this. Even if they have hundreds of thousands of these, they've found a way to, to somehow kind of contain the creativity and move it toward the aligned mission, but not burn out the creativity. So one way I think to fight against this is creating either an avenue, an outlet, something like I talked about, where you give like the periodic opportunity to pitch ideas and run with those. I think just 
having a fail fast mentality is very important in an organization. Like anyone here can try something. They're not going to reprimanded. Don't do it for all of our customers or don't, don't do it as big as possible. Like do it in a small setting so that the risk is somewhat low and learn from it. And then take your learnings and apply them to the next thing. And like test, learn, fail, iterate, pivot, like all the buzzwords I could possibly fit in there. But I think that mentality can be a really healthy mentality for any organization that's trying to grow, trying to innovate, trying to realizing just because, you know, things have worked this way in the past doesn't mean that they're going to work the same way in the future. And so that can all be done, I think, within the confines of that we're all rowing in the same direction. But it probably has to be like a value or even like a leadership stated principle, like Ed Catmull. Like he said, no, we are like no titles here. Anyone can go to anyone. I think they had the notes day that they talked about at the end there where everyone paused for two days and they got with different people in the organization and they were just going through a bunch of different ideas. And then they actually got to bring the best ideas and pitch them to leadership at the end of that. So they had an end game, but like they kind of opened up the creative space essentially for everyone at the entire organization. So companies could even do that. It would be expensive, but it's probably well worth the cost of even just like a few hours. It could just be a few hours, it could be one day kind of pausing. Because what you're saying to your people is we think we've got some really creative ideas here. And some of you are working with customers. Some of you are doing this. So let's try to bring it all together and see what comes out of that. And why wouldn't an organization want good ideas to come from within. That, that would be best case scenario. I think there was a, one of the leaders that gave everyone two days a month to work on anything they wanted. They could go and take classes at Pixar to you, or they could yep. work with yep. some of the other people in other departments. They could learn shading. They could learn how the computers work or whatever it is. And it was not necessarily to have you know, the next great idea or the next movie idea, but it was just so that people could maybe find a great idea to share with the company, but improve themselves, build new skill sets, have an appreciation for what other people do. I think that sometimes gets lost in what other people are doing. I really enjoyed the idea that creativity sometimes is to me defined as being like this free spirit, having all these ideas. And what I took away from this a little bit was it's not the number of ideas or it's not that you are more of a fountain of ideas than someone else, but it's more about having that outlet, like you were saying, for when the idea does strike you. We don't know where it's going to come from. And it may come from someone who just has one idea a year or one idea a lifetime. Does yep. that make it any less valuable just because this person has one idea in a lifetime? And he talks about the movie Ratatouille, where I think Igor at the end is writing the epilogue to the movie. And he's just saying, you don't know where the next great idea is going to come from. It can come from anywhere. And that was yep. a little bit of a commentary, I think, on their company itself. Now, having read this book, you blazed through it. This was funny. It was my recommendation, but <laughs> you just blazed through it faster than I did. It was something I wanted to read for a long time. But overall, what did you think after finishing this book? Yeah. My main takeaway was that I think we're at wherever we're working, whoever's listening, wherever you're at, like you can create a culture of creativity with the people around you. too. You can just have a mentality of fail fast, test and learn, try things out, I think just getting started at something that just, just doing audible, like I've said, and reading the book to me is just another example to me of just get started. You just never know what you're going to find. And it's, I'm five books in one month. I would have bet you a thousand dollars, probably more than that, probably that I could accomplish that in a month. So just getting started, learning along the way, not trying to over perfect 
and also encouraging those around you to have ideas, to bring those ideas, to have even a place to put the ideas, like whether it's a notebook, <laughs> as simple as a notebook, it could be on a task master type thing that you have. It could be a suggestion box. It could be a SharePoint. I mean, there's so many different places, but because I think to me, what the saddest thing would be a genius idea happens and it just gets lost. Like no one knows about it. Put it on the person to not have even talked about it. You're in the shower, you get the light bulb, the lightning bolt moment, and you don't record it. You don't write it down. And then you're like, what was that again? And that'd be so sad, especially if it was like a really beneficial type thing. And maybe it's in the early forms. And so that's where I think the culture of creativity can help hone that idea. And I don't know about you, but I actually work almost better sometimes in groups of people when there's a lot of ideas being brought in, because um, I, I like feed off of the other person. Like you, we've had a lot of chats about different things and it's like, you bring an idea, then I'm like, oh, what about this and this and this and this? And then it just builds up or builds down or builds sideways <laughs> to some of the ideas. So I guess I think you, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait to be creative. You don't have to wait to have a culture of creativity. You don't have to wait to do creative things. And creativity is not this like dreamer, like you said, nebulous kind of concept that's out there. It's honestly just trying to solve problems in a new way. That's pretty much all that it is at the core. So that was my main takeaway is that no matter what the culture is like around you, no matter what the buy-in is like around you in any part of life on creativity, like you can still be a very creative person and try to encourage others around you in that way. So that's something I plan to take away. I think within our own team here, we hope to just continue to foster that creativity, leave our titles at the door <laughs> and see where good ideas come from and then you know, try to test them and see if they work. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I enjoyed the book. I actually have a deeper appreciation and respect for Ed Camel, someone I really did not know other than maybe the Same. name because he was affiliated with Pixar. Steve Jobs, I think, was obviously the figurehead that a lot of people associate with their success. But I think Ed had a pivotal role there. And I think his open-mindedness to all of these things, especially as he's learning, it wasn't like he was a seasoned executive from another big Fortune 500 company that was brought in, right? He was learning along the way. So he has the successes and the failures under his belt, but I think what he had is a pulse of the human experience, right? And he just wanted to treat people the way he wanted to be treated himself. And those ideas, you never know where they're gonna come from. And I think the lesson to me here is that the culture in most companies has to exist top down because there are a lot of times and you hope that there's this grassroots bubble up to the surface kind of culture too. But the reality is if as things bubble up, they get tamped down. Hey, we don't do that. That's not what we do. The ideas are coming from our executive committee or, hey, the confines of our business are this, or, hey, this is our bread and butter. We don't want to go out here. We don't want to cannibalize our business. That was one of the reasons Blockbuster didn't want to go online is because, oh my gosh, this will cannibalize it. The question is, do you want to cannibalize it as part of your business or do you want someone else's business to cannibalize <laughs> exactly. or BlackBerry or any of these companies? It's funny to me because I think if you are open to whatever the next chapter 2.0 of your company or accelerating your business or taking it to the next level as a person at the top or the people at the top, you really need to encourage and foster that openness to the people underneath. And I think fundamentally have trust that they want to help the company. I think there are a lot of people who are paranoid maybe that the employees are just in it for themselves, that they're trying to do as little as they can or get away with stuff or whatever it might be. But if you have some implicit trust that they are trying to help 
and you let them vocalize what their concerns are. Maybe sometimes it's a fix for a problem. Maybe it's not necessarily a great business opportunity. Maybe it's just an area to do something better or to do something slower that might make it more enjoyable for the employees, whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, to me as a leader, you are almost entrusted with this responsibility of keeping open channels for your people. Like you said, the suggestion box or the email box or yep. an anonymous email box. It doesn't matter to me what it is, but just some method so that people can feel like this is a place where they can contribute and be a part of it. I think we all want to do that. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of why I took away from it. I really enjoyed it. If you want to pick up Creativity Inc., you can get it from any of your favorite bookstores. Borders, Barnes & Noble, Barber's Books, <laughs> all of your local book emporiums, or online, Fox Books, if you remember, you've got mail. But uh, you can also get this on Audible. We listened to it on audiobook. I thought it was a really great book. And it's a really easy to listen to because it is just a book of a story with a lot of lessons in it. So I'll put a link to those in the description below. So hopefully our conversation today about creativity will help you in life, maybe even with your money. That's all for today, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye.